All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman. Today, we are talking about the latest on Julio Jones. And of course, we're going to be answering your listener questions, dealing with the Atlanta Falcons and all things training camp and whatnot. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman, founder of FalFans.com, one of the longest-running Falcon websites on the Internet. I'm on Twitter at FalFans, and, of course, I'm the host of this illustrious Locked on Falcons podcast. So today we're going to be talking about sort of the late-breaking news, I guess you could say, with what Jeff Schultz wrote on the theathletic.com, basically revealing that the Falcons had told Julio Jones that they weren't going to redo his contract this year or at least before the season started and that they would wait and punt till 2019 and in sort of dealing with that situation and um I want to plug the, an article that I put us up, put up on lockedonfalcons.com uh I definitely say go recommend reading that um if you haven't already or go check that out after this because you know I won't necessarily revisit everything I said in that uh, on today's episode, but basically it was titled Why Julio Jones Won't Hold Out, and I basically explained why I don't think a holdout is impending in, in, in regards to Julio Jones in this situation. Um, you know, I'm very confident in that, but I, I, I you know, I could be wrong. Uh, but we'll go check that out and, and, and sort of get the gist of that, and I'll touch upon some of the points I brought up in that article as to why I don't think the holdout will be likely. Um, but then after that, we touch upon that. We will get into some uh, Q&A, uh, answering your questions, and I'll answer those on this episode. But as I say, um, because we have that first segment dealing with Julio, and as I often say, when we do these Q&A episodes, we try not to run too long. The, I, the goal is to keep these episodes under 30 minutes. And uh, basically, if any questions I don't get to on this particular Q&A, you can certainly expect me to... Uh, do a leftover sort of mailbag this weekend on LockedOnFalcons.com, either Saturday or Sunday, when I, whenever I get around to it. Um, and so, you know, that's basically what's going to happen on today's episode. So let, let's talk about Julio Jones in this situation. And I think, you know, as I said in that piece I just plugged, um, I don't think Julio's going to hold out. Basically, as I've explained a number of times this offseason, and I talked about this in May when it first came out that Julio wanted, uh, you know, an updated contract. I, I still think that term updated matters because I think it's very much akin to the whole Antonio Brown situation that happened several years ago, which I'll revisit in a second. But we talked about it in May and we talked about it in June. And I just never saw this as a big deal because I felt like Julio basically was trying to play this card that Antonio Brown had set back in 2015 and to set the stage for what that situation was, in 2012, if I recall correctly, the Steelers basically offered Mike Wallace this big contract. Mike Wallace said, I'm worth more than that. He turned it down. So the Steelers basically turned towards Antonio Brown and said, okay, we'll just give that money to Antonio Brown. And he wound up you know, basically emerging as one of the premier receivers in the league in, shortly thereafter. And um, Mike, Mike Wallace has basically you know, fallen off the earth by and large, and could become a journeyman wide receiver in the league since. And, you know, because they were able to get Antonio Brown at a relative bargain based off of where he was a couple of years later when he was 
you know, I would argue back in 2014 was the best wide receiver in the league. I think Julio's sort of since 2016, certainly maybe 2015, you can argue, um, has emerged sort of past him. But in 2014, I certainly think there is no doubt about it in my mind that Antonio Brown should have been considered one and Julio two. Um, but um, basically, shortly thereafter, and once guys like Des Bryant started getting paid in 2015, and uh, among other guys, Antonio Brown was like, hey, guys, you know, bump my pay. Um, I got three years left on my deal, sure, but I, I think I deserve to be paid more money. Antonio Brown, I think at the time, skipped voluntary minicamp, um, but went for mandatory, showed up for training camp, and the Steelers wound up bumping that pay by taking his 2016 base salary converting into signing bonus, which he pocketed as an immediate raise, had very little cap ramifications. And this whole Julio situation to me was basically Julio trying to get the same thing happen because we've seen a bunch of guys over the last 10 months now, basically since DeAndre Hopkins got paid last summer, uh, about a year ago in August of 2017, we've seen a number of sort of you know, I'm not throwing slander at DeAndre Hopkins in this case, but we've seen a number of lesser receivers. So, you know, DeAndre Hopkins is certainly at the top of the league, but you've seen guys like Devontae Adams. You've seen guys like Brandon Cooks. You've seen guys like Jarvis Landry, guys that most people would not think are arguably top five receivers getting paid more money than Julio Jones in the similar way that Antonio Brown saw that with other guys that, you know, weren't on his level getting paid more than he was. Um, and sort of was like, give me more money. And at the same time, you also have the talk about maybe the fact that Julio Jones isn't necessarily prepared to play beyond where his court contract expires, which is in 2021. We've talked about this on the previous podcast, debating and discussing whether or not Julio Jones has a limited number of peak seasons left due to the fact that, you know, he's getting older now and all these nagging injuries will start to accumulate with him. And you heard from Jeff Schultz, uh, of the AJC, or formerly of the AJC, now with the Athletic, I'm, i got to get used to that, um, basically say that maybe there's a little bit of Calvin Johnson in Julio and the fact that he may not play well into his 30s, as many people probably want and hope. And so Julio's looking at the situation in conjunction to all these other receivers passing him by. He's looking at this situation as, this is going to be my last payday, so I, I want to get paid. So I'm making my move now because there's been a precedent set with Antonio Brown's situation. And, you know, he played his card. The Falcons looked at that card and said, okay, we'll wait until next year. Um, Other guys like Jake Matthews and Grady Jarrett and Ricardo Allen take priority because all those guys have expiring contracts because you have, um, you know, three more years left on your contract. You're not going to be our first priority, but we will get it done next season, next offseason, whether that's in the spring, whether that's in the summer, but we will take care of you, Julio. And to me, that's the end of the conversation. That's it. The problem is solved, and Julio will wind up showing up at training camp next week, and everything will be fine, and it's not going to be a distraction. It's not going to be a big deal. But I feel like there has been this push by many people to try to make this into a bigger deal than what it is. But I do want to talk, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but I do want to talk to you guys about Core Essentials. Core Essentials. That's K-O-R-E Essentials makes the best belt you'll ever own. What makes Core Track Belt so awesome? Well, they have no belt holds. Instead, their belts use a hidden track at the back of the belt with over 40 size points to choose from. Core Track Belts adjust to match your waist exactly so you no more worries about slippage while you work, walk, eat, or play. Each point on the Core Track Belt is a quarter inch apart. That simple, small innovation means that you get a precise 
steady and comfortable fit every time you put it on. Removing or adjusting your core track belt is simple. Just pinch the small tab under the buckle. Their patented design makes it easy to remove the buckle or swap styles. Core track belts ship one size fits every waist from 24 to 44 inches with an extra large belt that goes up to 54 inches so you can adjust the size yourself using their easy guide. Core offers a full line of fashion belts including a classic double stitched with full grain leather and smooth belts with no stitching as well as gun belts for concealed carry. They offer a stylish assortment of buckle faces made using solid stainless steel or high grade zinc alloys. Core's men's belts carry a 30 day money back guarantee and a full one year warranty against all defects, unusual wear or breakage so you can feel confident when you shop knowing you're covered. But trust me, you're going to love this belt and get rid of all your others. Visit coreessentials.com to learn more and get your own core track belt to see firsthand why it's the best belt you'll ever own. As they say, once you go core track, you'll never go back. And we've got a special offer for just our listeners. Save 10% off your order when you use the promo code LOCKEDON at checkout. That's core with a K, K-O-R-E, essentials.com, and use the code LOCKEDON to save 10% off your order. Now, the interesting thing about this situation is let's let's play devil's advocate. Let's let's play head devil's advocate. What does Julio gain by potentially holding out? And I would argue he gains nothing. And I think there's been this perception, and I think it's been fueled partly by ignorance, and I think, you know, ignorance over how the NFL economics work. And I think a lot of it has just been fueled by people, maybe, you know, arguably some local radio personalities in Atlanta trying their best to sort of drive up ratings by making this into a mountain out of a molehill. Um, and, you know, I think maybe there are a couple of Falcon bloggers that may be trying to get some retweets or, or whatever the case may be by, you know, playing that card or, or whatever the case may be. You're getting some some clicks or whatever the case may be. Let's play the hypothetical game of what happens if Julio holds out. Well, basically, the only reason for Julio holdout is basically to say, you know what? No, I'm not going to wait until 2019 to get paid. I want to get paid now. And to me, that strategy for Julio is not going to work. And so there's thus there's no reason for him to do that because that's not going to force the Falcons hand. Contrary to what some people might be saying there out there on the Internet or on the radio raves. Despite the fact that Julio Jones is arguably the best player on the planet, he does not have leverage in this situation. He is not going to force the Falcons to say, oh, you know what? We made this decision, and now we're suddenly going to renege on that decision, and we're going to pay you now because you decided to hold out from training camp, and we can't live without you, Julio. That's not going to happen, guys. And for those of you that are parents, those of you that are uncles, those of you that are basically any human being that has dealt with this small child know exactly what I'm talking about. And I don't use this analogy to basically paint Julio as a bad guy or to call him a child. But I will sit here and say that if he decides to hold out, he is acting childlike in this sense because it's basically the same thing as you and I saw the situation happen with my niece a couple of weeks ago where it's like, you know, she wanted some ice cream. Her dad said we got to do these other things and then we'll get some ice cream after we do these things because I've got to run some errands. And, you know, her choices then were she could either be like, okay, Or she could pout and throw a temper tantrum and be like, no, I want my ice cream now. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. Give me the ice cream now. And you guys know as parents that if your child does that, you know, at least 99% of you, the good parents out there at least, um, you know, will sit there and be like, oh, okay, you want to play that card? Okay, well, guess what? You're not going to get ice cream now because that's not the way you behave and that's not how you act. 
And that's essentially what this situation is like. And the reality uh, and the reason why I don't use the I use that analogy, because essentially in this situation, NFL teams hold all the cards. They hold all the leverage. The only time players get leverage is in a situation like Le'Veon Bell, where he's not under contract. He's entering a contract year and he's not under the contract. And so basically, in the case of Le'Veon Bell, he can threaten a holdout because he's not under the contract due to the franchise tag. And so he can decide to sit out the first 10 games of the season because that's allowed under the current CBA. And he doesn't, he doesn't, it's not going to hurt him any because he's going to be, he's going to walk in after the season. And so he's just like, I just got to show up long enough to, to get my credited season, six games, and that's it. And it's up to you guys to do whatever you want to do. But Julio Jones being under contract doesn't have that leverage, even if he is the best player on the planet, even if it is a situation where the Falcons would be four and 12 without him or whatever the case may be. Because the only thing that a holdout does is create acrimony. It's no different than a child throwing a temperature. And that's the reason why I use that analogy, because the team is the parent. They control. A team can get out of a contract anytime they want. A player is compelled due to the rules to honor that. And people need to understand that. And so the situation is is way. And because of that, I don't think there's any chance that Julio Jones is going to hold out. If he had an inexperienced agent that was trying to get into the shoving match with a team because he didn't know better he didn't know how the nfl worked then i could have there's a plausibility that julio that person could tell julio hold out and i'll get you your money but that's not how julio jones is why he's going to show up he's a football first guy he's going to play his tail off and then he's going to you know he might grumble behind the scenes he might complain to his friends and his family you know he might show a little bit of body language next time he He's talking to Thomas Dimitrov or Scott Pioli and giving them a little bit of a cold shoulder. But he's a professional football player, and that's why we love this guy. So I don't want to paint Julio as a bad guy or anything like this situation. But I'm just going to sit here and say that it's not it, a holdout only drives a further wedge because now that opens the door for the Falcons to say, oh, you know what? Oh, if you're going to hold out, if you're not going to honor your part of the bargain, which is being under contract, guess what? We're not going to redo your deal. And so you can do whatever you want to do. We got Calvin Ridley. We got Muhammad Sanu. We are more than willing to move on and, and do what's in the best interest of our team. And if that means not having Julio Jones play on the team, so be it. Are the Falcons going to do that? No, they don't need to do that. But the point is, if you hold out, all of a sudden, now that becomes a thing. Now it does indeed become a distraction. So I want to be, make that clear. I don't think this is going to be a thing. And let's move on and, and talk about, get to these Q&A questions. But before we do, I do want to plug LockdownSports.com, your one-stop hub for the Lockdown Podcast Network, where you can find NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, and fantasy content, your team every day. So, our first question comes from Evan Birchfield. What's happening at fullback going into training camp? Well, Evan, I kind of talked about this on the um, podcast I did back in June 27th, I believe, where we broke down the fullback position for a half hour. Um, so, I'm disappointed in you, Evan, because clearly you're not listening to every episode. But the gist of that, to summarize, is Ricky Ortiz, Daniel Marks, Luke McNitt are going to compete for the job. I suspect that Ricky Ortiz will be the front runner at that position. However, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, you know, I, if I was ordering, I'd say Ortiz is most likely Marks follows by that. And then McNitt to me, the big questions with the fullback situation is going to be are because there's three guys now competing for this job. Are the Falcons going to be able to split up the reps and still feel satisfied that a, they're able to properly evaluate these players, not only in practice, but in game situations and B, 
is the that player whoever winds up emerging as the front runner and the leader is he going to now get enough reps to get that person prepared to for week one those are to be the big questions with the fullback position how it all plays out remains to be seen but that's something we'll find out in the next couple of weeks Next question comes from Aaron Burke Lumley. What do you think of the chances of Saubert actually improving enough to contribute significantly this year? Um, it depends on what you consider a significant contrib- contribution here. I think sort of Saubert maxes out at like 10, 15, maybe 20 catches this year, maybe gets a couple of touchdowns. Um, I think your best case scenario, um, even in a, in a reality where like Austin Hooper misses the majority of the season with an injury to Saubert his replacement as a starter, you got to go back to Hooper's rookie season. And when he replaced Jacob Tammy, uh, starting in like week eight as a starter and started the rest of the season, made 10 starts, including the postseason, he was averaging about a little less than two catches a game on a, a little bit more than three targets a game. So even if you were to, uh, extrapolate that over a 16 game season, you're talking about Saubert sort of maxing out or Hooper maxing out in that situation, but now Saubert applying it to Saubert, maxing out at about 30 catches. And I don't think Saubert is as good as Hooper. I don't think Saubert is playing in an offense led by Sark that is as good as what Hooper was playing in 2016, led by Shanahan, in terms of being able to manufacture and scheme opportunities for the tight end. So I still think, you know, even in that reality, you're really only talking about, again, maybe 20 25 catches if Saubert was a 16-game starter this year. So, again, is that significant in your eyes? Maybe. Um, it's significant based off of what he was last year where he had, like, what, zero catches on, like, zero targets or one target or whatever it was. Um, so that's a significant improvement there. But I, I think the best-case scenario is sort of a similar situation where we saw with Hooper where you get a couple of third-down conversions for Saubert, you get maybe a couple of red zone targets, and maybe he, he takes advantage of those. Um, go back to Ro- Hooper's rookie season. He had five third down conversions that year. He had two touchdowns on five red zone targets. That, to me, is sort of the, the ceiling in terms of, quote-unquote, a significant contribution that Saubert could do as a number two tight end in, in this season. But um, it would probably be a little bit less than that, um, just based off my expectations for what Sark is going to do as a play caller this year. Um, but so... Yeah, I, I would say the, the chances of, of that happening are decent. You know, I don't know, 8 to 1 odds or I don't know what, what it would be. Uh, 5 to 1 odds that Stopper can sort of put up 20 catches and maybe one or two touchdowns this year. Yeah, I think that's decent odds that that, that happens if he wins that battle. But anything more than that, I, I think you're really being um, a little naive, similar to... You know, people saying that Hooper was going to be a disc breakout superstar last year. It's just, I, I, and I say that because I just think it's people talking about a thing that they don't really know what they're talking about. That's what I'll say. So, Saubert will could be fine, but don't expect a huge production from him. Um, next question comes from Steve Barnes at Steve Barnes nineteen seventy eight on Twitter. Historically, how often do Rookie of the Year awards indicate team success in year two? Um, taking this question at face value, and when you, you, when you say team success, I, I assume you really mean team success. So what did I do? I went back, going back to 2007 through 2016 to get a decade-long worth of, of data. Now that, you know, we can't include 2017 in that data because we don't know what these guys or what these teams will do in the next year. But looking at that decade-long data, looking at both offensive rookies of the year and defensive rookies of the year and seeing what their teams did um, in that year that they won the rookie of the year and then what they did in the follow-up year. Um, looking at the offensive rookie of the years, um, 
on average, uh, those teams lost two more games the following year than they did the, the previous year. Five of the ten offensive rookie years played on playoff teams during their successful playoff, their rookie campaigns, but only one of those were able to repeat in year two. Of the other five that did make the playoffs in that initial year, um, uh, only one of them was able to make the playoffs the following year. So clearly there is a general trend of decline for um, teams that have an offensive rookie year over the last 10 years. Uh, Looking on the defensive side of the ball, you saw an average improvement of 1.4 wins in year two. Only two teams that had a defensive rookie year back since 2007 made the playoffs in that initial year. That was Von Miller's Broncos in the Tebow year, Marcus Peters with the Chiefs a couple of years ago. And both of those teams did repeat as playoff teams in the following year. Of the eight teams that did make the playoffs in that initial year, three of them did make the playoffs the following years. So generally speaking, there seems to be an upward trend for um, defensive rookie of the year, at least for their teams. So, you know, I guess since the Saints won both awards, I guess if you balance them out, minus two wins plus 1.4 wins, they're due for a decline of 0.6 wins. I don't know if this is enough data to really draw any strong conclusions. Maybe it, it seems to suggest a little bit that maybe, particularly when you look at some of these quarterbacks, there is a tendency for if a quarterback wins offensive rookie of the year, he might hit some of that sort of sophomore slump stuff. We saw that with Ryan. We saw that with Sam Bradford and Robert Griffin. Um, although in the case of Bradford and Griffin, both of those guys got hurt, uh, which led was the main culprit to those guys' teams' decline. And then we saw that this past year with Dak Prescott and the Cowboys. So um, maybe that's the only conclusion I, I would draw too much from it. Maybe that means that I should reconsider maybe you know, going all in on the Houston Texans with Deshaun Watson given he's coming off an injury and all those sort of things. So it mirrors that, but that's something worth considering. But I I don't know if you can draw anything else from based off of that. Um, Next question comes from Maddie Brand Muffins at Matt Dash B on Twitter. He says, how much impact do you think Greg Knapp will have on the offense, if any? And two, ultimately, what is KZ's future in the secondary? I'll answer the second question first because it's an easier answer. We don't know. I think that's what we're going to find out this summer. I think, you know, trying to sit here and guess. I think there's a reality where Casey continues his progress and, and becomes a starter in 2019. I think there's a reality where Casey continues his progress and becomes a starter much, much later, 2021, when his contract expires and he gets re-signed a deal. There's a reality where Casey never becomes a starter and plays four years in Atlanta or less, I guess, um, and winds up leaving elsewhere. There's a reality where he you know, doesn't become a starter, but becomes a very good backup and, and may wind up playing 10 or 12 years in Atlanta as a, you know, sort of um, situational starter and a quality backup, similar to what you see with um, Kamal Ishmael or guys like, you know, I can't think of anybody else on top of my head, but guys that have longevity as, as backups. And I think whether determining whether or not one of those, Casey is firmly on one or one of those paths or the other remains to be seen. Um, as for Grapp's, uh, Greg, I'm sorry, Greg Knapp's impact, um, I'm not sure. I, I'm not necessarily buying the whole notion that Greg Knapp's presence is going to mean wonders for Sark. I do, as I've said a number of times this offseason, I do expect improvement from Sark, but I don't necessarily know how much that can be facilitated by Greg Knapp. Um, he has shown throughout his career that he is a pretty competent to good quarterbacks coach. Um, and so I think, you know, you can 
company then make an argument that because of his work with Matt Ryan, he will help be this sort of liaison and bridge him and, and help Ryan get more comfortable in Sark's offense. But again, I think that's only going to happen if Sark has sort of a clear cut plan that then Nap can easily communicate with um, with Ryan as opposed to Nap suddenly come, swooping in and, and establishing this clear cut plan and, and, and then allowing all the things to fall from that. I mean, you look at Greg Nap, you know, in terms of his ability to help Sark with his play calling, you, you look at Greg Knapp in his career as an offensive coordinator, it's not that promising. Like, you know, basically since he left Atlanta, and I, you know, I think he got a little bit of bad rap in Atlanta just because I think some of the issues with the offense had more to do with Michael Vick than it did necessarily with Knapp and his ability as a play caller. But since he's left Atlanta, he's had almost no success. He's been a coordinator in Oakland and Seattle for four or five years uh, since that 06 season. And every single year, his team finished in the bottom 10 in scoring in the league. Um, the one thing that you can certainly say about Greg Knapp throughout his career is that he's very good at coordinating a run game. But then you can argue like because he plays this zone blocking scheme, you know, perfected by Shanahan and Alex Gibbs and whatnot in Denver that he's basically been copying the last couple of years, that it's not really him. It's more the blocking scheme sort of thing. So. Again, I'm not necessarily buying Greg Nass thought that he's going to be this huge positive influence on the offense. I think the main things that the Falcons need to do um, in terms of getting their offense back on track revolve around Sark and Ryan. And again, maybe Nat figures into that, but I'm not willing to basically give him the credit for however it be. I think the first thing, this is no particular order, but the first thing I think Matt Ryan needs to be much more comfortable with running the offense. I think you can make a a very strong argument that the number one issue with the team last year was that he just was not comfortable with what Sark was asking him to do. And you saw this, you know, I saw that the evidence of this to me was um, he was basically staring down Julio for half the season, which is what we saw in 2015 when Shanahan came in. Um, so that's going to be a big key and maybe nap helps there. The second thing is I think Sark needs to do a better job understanding the current personnel strengths and weaknesses. And I think that should come with experience. The third thing I think finally is that he needs to do a better job. Sark that is establishing an identity and then building off that as the season wears on. I think too much, too often last year, Sark was kind of just throwing stuff at a wall and hoping something would stick. Um, if there's a fourth thing, and this is more of a nuanced thing, and I think this will only this will wind up coming if the first two or three things come true, is that Sark needs to do a better job at diagnosing coverages and exploiting matchups and taking advantage of those things with his play calling. But I think if the first three things, if he if he can check those boxes, that will come by you know from a natural extension of that. And maybe you can say that Nap's experience in the league will help him in that regard, but. I think Sark wouldn't have made it to this level and been retained if Dan Quinn thought that he couldn't understand what how to beat cover two. Like it just wouldn't make any sense that he would still be the offensive coordinator too. So I just don't necessarily know if that's an issue that Sark really needs help with. I think he only really needs help with that. Um, or that will come because he's more comfortable with what he's trying to do. Again, establishing that identity. Um, it's like this is what I want to do, and so therefore I can build off of that and then use that as the core foundation of what I want to do offensively. And I don't think that was really the case last year, which led to them not necessarily really doing some of the specific things that Shanahan had done to sort of attack teams coverages. Um, I think this might be the last question we have today uh, just to get this thing under 30 minutes. Uh, Brandon rich at brand, the builder on Twitter asks, 
Were there any pass route combinations or particular packages that gave our defense more trouble in particular? I know common methods to beat cover three, but was anything else effective against us? Uh, Brandon, I don't necessarily recall anything specifically outside of the usual cover three beaters that I'm sure you're aware of, like the in-breaking routes, the deep crossers, and some of the underneath stuff that can sort of expose some of the holes in, in that zone. I'd honestly have to go back and look. Um, but I would only probably focus in on the Saints' loss and the Eagles' loss uh, in the postseason because I think those were really games where my memories tells me that the Falcons may have had some issues with some of their passing game, uh, with their pass offenses, and so the pass defense might have, you know, been much more exposed and vulnerable in that game. But nothing specifically that I recall from last year from watching the film. Um, and I, you know, this is, I don't want to suggest that this is a causation. This is more a correlation because we know that, you know, when teams are up in games and winning in games, they have a tendency to run the football. But it is interesting to me that when you look back at last season in the games where the Falcons gave up a hundred or more yards on the ground, they were four and five in the games where they gave up 99 or less, they were seven and two. And I think when you go back to some of these games against Miami in the first half, against Buffalo, against New England, um, among others, um, one of the things that really stood out to me in all of those games was that the run defense was getting exposed more often than not. So I don't necessarily feel like there's many issues with the secondary or the pass defense. And again, that's one of the reasons why I've been spending the last week or so talking about how amazing the secondary is. It's just not a thing that outside of facing some of the the prominent receivers and tight ends in the league, the Mike Evanses, the Mike Thomases, the Zach Ertzes of the league, they don't necessarily. It didn't feel like there was anything specifically that teams were doing, like you know, throwing double tight end sets at them or anything that was really consistently exposing them uh, on a consistent basis throughout the year. So um, I'd have to go back and rewatch the tape. Uh, you know, full disclosure, I have barely watched any 2017 Falcons tape. I probably won't watch much. I will probably wind up watching the Eagles game and the Saints game and the Panthers game at some point in the next month or so to get prepared for those early season rematches um, this season. But outside of that, I'm probably not going to revisit much of the 2017 tape. I've watched, you know, an individual player here or there when I watched Tack and when I watched Vic Beasley um, to sort of do that edge rusher breakdown uh, uh, last week. But um, by and large, I've sort of moved on from the 2017 season. I, you know, I probably could go back and revisit and give it some fresh eyes or something like that now that we're completely removed from it. But it's one of those things where uh, like I, it's it doesn't really interest me in particular to go back and, and revisit 2017. I've, I've already reached my conclusions at this point. They're, they're pretty much etched in stone and I'm, I'm more looking forward to what's going to happen in 2018 with those same sort of fresh eyes. So I know we got some questions from Zamir. I know Martin Gisborne asked me a, a question about Julio. I guess I can quickly answer that. He basically asked, what is a hypothetical if the Falcons and, and Julio don't get really get a deal done? Um, do you see them trading? Um, I, look, I, I don't think the Falcons, I don't think it's ever going to come to that. I think, you know, having a guy like Calvin Ridley um, means that, you know, the Falcons have a plan in place for the post-Julio days, but I think the Falcons have no intention of accelerating the post-Julio days. So I feel like, you know, if the Falcons and Julio, for whatever reason, don't get a deal done, not only this summer, but then next offseason, then nothing is going to come from it. I think they'll just basically be like, well, Julio will show up when he wants to show up. You know, Julio might have more cause to hold out next summer than he does this summer. 
Um, but I don't think they're going to facilitate a trade anytime soon. I think the earliest you could see that is maybe after Calvin Ridley gets a couple of years under his belt, like two or three, and has proven himself to be, you know, on this level of guys like a Mike Thomas or an Odell Beckham or, or somebody like that. And therefore the Falcons are like, we can't really afford to have all these highly paid receivers and Julio is whatever, whatever that situation is. And so let's move on from him. But at that point, you know, given you're probably only going to hear more talk about maybe the fact that Julio wants to hang it up. Uh, I mean, basically what I would say is this, the day that the Falcons want to trade Julio Jones, I think his trade value will pretty much plummet to the point where it won't even be worth it to them to trade him. You know, like basically like the minute the Falcons are ready to basically say, oh, like Julio, you're expendable. Like how, how, how old, how injured and how bad would Julio have to be similar to what we saw with Andre Johnson at the end of his career or Reggie Wayne at the end of his career before we reach that day, you know? If there's anything left in the tank that suggests that Julio is still a top receiver, the Falcons going to keep him because he's Julio freaking Jones. Um, so, I, like, I feel like a trade is never really realistic. I think the more than likely Julio will play out his contract in Atlanta. Whether or not he gets a deal after that, I think, is, is certainly open to debate. But I, I very much expect Julio to play at least another two, if not three more seasons. And the only thing that's going to stop that if Julio decides to do pull a Calvin Johnson and say, you know what, I'm, I'm done playing football at age 30 or age 31 or something like that. So I, that's basically how that situation gets played out. There you go. All right, guys. Um, appreciate you guys for tuning in this week. And um, we will uh, want to remind you guys that we will have something up on Lockdown Falcons this weekend. If you still have any other questions, please get those in um, and we can get those up on Lockdown Falcons and uh lockedupfathers.com i'm sorry and uh we'll be back next week to talk more about um falcons training camp and you know now you know in my luck now that i've posted an article why the falcons why julio won't hold out we'll find out something over this weekend where julio was like i'm not showing up for training camp and i'm like okay i gotta i gotta eat that one again um which wouldn't be the first time I, i got something wrong but um, I guess we can talk about that on Monday. But in the meantime, you can send in your request for questions or thoughts, feedback, whatever it is, on the podcast. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Falcons. If it's podcast related, just let me know. And it's easier just to go ahead and send in the show's Twitter handle. That's Locked on Falcons. Locked on Falcons is also the name of our Facebook page where you can message me there. You can also send an email to LockedOnFalcons at mail.com or leave a comment at LockedOnFalcons.com or Falcons.com where the show is posted daily. So until then, guys. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.